unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hey, everyone. This is Jason. Before we get into the episode this week, I just wanted to invite you to join the Messy Conversations group on Facebook. You know, I've always wanted a place where we can all engage together with the ideas and topics raised on the podcast. So we've started Messy Conversations as a place for the Messy Spirituality podcast community to further engage with those topics, to engage in conversations about deconstruction, reconstruction, and everything in between. For the privacy and safety of everybody involved, it's a closed group. Healthy, respectful debate is, of course, encouraged, but any name-calling, finger-pointing, accusatory, or toxic conversation gets folks bounced from the group. Hopefully, that won't ever be an issue. We really just wanted a place where you can come and tell us what's on your mind as a result of the conversations that we have here on the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can go to facebook.com slash groups slash messy conversations with an S, it's plural, Messy Conversations, to join the conversation, and I hope to see you there. Maggie Lee Calvin's roots are in Texas, and after serving in Kansas as a minister to children and families at a mainline Protestant church for over a decade, she now serves as Director of Engagement for the Institute of Discipleship. Her days include such fun as recruiting participants and instructors for BeADisciple.com, producing and co-hosting the Listening Chair podcast, and writing and speaking over grit and grace to her fellow spiritually attuned go-getters. She has a BA in Religion and Philosophy from Southwestern College of Kansas and an MA in Children's and Family Ministry from Bethel Seminary of Minnesota. Meg is a member of the 2019-2020 cohort of the Foundations of Christian Leadership Program of Duke Divinity School. Her hilarious and heartfelt new book, I Am My Own Sanctuary, releases today from Choir Publishing, and it's an honor to have her with me today on the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Welcome, Meg Calvin. Yay! Thank you, Jason. I'm so glad to be with you today. Well, I'm really excited to have you here today with me. Can we talk about your backstory a little bit before we talk about the book? I've read some of it. It is really extraordinary. What was your first exposure to faith? Oh, my first exposure to faith would have to be at least the earliest memory, because I'm sure God was at work. I know God was at work in my life before this memory and in my family's life. But I would say the first time I felt the palpable presence of the Holy Spirit was when I was six and I was singing in a church choir. And this was a very special church choir for me because I was the only Caucasian person in it. It was an African-American spiritual choir gospel choir and my mom's coworker led this choir. And so I was invited to sing in it with them. And this was on our army base and it was a non-denominational church, but it was, it was filled with gospel music. And so I, I remember one Sunday, my mom braided my hair to sing and we were clapping and swaying. And I, I felt as the founder of my denomination, John Wesley said, I felt my heart get strangely warmed and I felt light and I felt love and peace and comfort, which all those things are good on their own. But my external factors that were going on for my family at that time were a recent divorce and then a remarriage. My dad was in the army, so he was in the Gulf War. We had just moved across the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> so that's a lot for a young child to go through. And so I, I remember that moment that peace that I felt and knowing that I was going to be taken care of, that the God is with me and God is with my family, despite the, the issues we were having, that God was, 
was there and was providing me peace and, and strength. And that happened through through this moment of of corporate lively worship for me as a as a six year old. Wow, that's something. Did that same peace remain with you as you kind of planted yourself in the church at a young age? Yes, it did. It did. It was it was as a as a child it was a moment where worship, authentic worship was modeled for me and I was surrounded by a supplemental family that was loving on me at a time that my my parents weren't able to love me to the best of their abilities. And so it 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 modeled so much for me of community, of worship, of the Holy Spirit. I think it, 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 that also instilled in me the power of words because the words that I was singing in those gospel songs were becoming my reality and the, that reality of hope. And so, yeah, that definitely stayed with me as I began to feel a nudge to to lead in the church setting. What was that calling like for you? I know that you worked specifically within a local church setting for a long time. Mm-hmm. What did that look like for you? How did you get drawn into that? As I share in the book, the the gospel choir moment planted a seed and then in second grade, and this is on our on our listening chair podcast where we talk about vocational discernment. We love this question and we love how people explore it when we ask them to look back over their childhood and find some my old boss Pastor Dave used to call them holy breadcrumbs. Look back over these holy breadcrumbs of foreshadowing moments that point to how you serve, how you create as an adult. And these would be mine. The gospel choir when I was six. And then in the next year or two, I I struggled and I always struggled in school until middle school because as you can tell, I talk too much and I love to move. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I wasn't the best student, but Mr. Spriggs in second grade he encouraged me to write for show and tell. And I would write songs and sing songs. I'd sing some of those gospel songs that I was taught in church. I'd write stories. I'd write jokes. And he told, he told my mom that he foresaw, I don't know if he was a Christian man, but he, he cast a vision for my life then that I would become a comedian. And he told my mom that, and she told me, and I felt so loved and affirmed by him as an educator that that really started to help me like school at that time. And so fast forward to middle school youth group in seventh grade, and it's Youth Sunday, and they they need a they need a, a student to bring the word, and nobody's volunteering, and I I was new to town, <laughs> and I remember, and my my grandparents were the reason we were in that youth group in the first place, and I remember in that seventh grade youth group space, and it was high school and middle school upstairs because you know youth groups are always in the basement of the church or the attic of the church. You know, so funny how we place usually in a local church where we place those programs. Anyway, we were we were in the attic, <laughs> and that they had painted really cool for us teenagers. No one raised, was raising their hand, and the youth director said, "Come on, guys, anybody, just anybody can bring the word." And I remember thinking back, well, Mr. Spriggs said I had a gift in words, and there, I really felt God, something really cool happened to me when I was in front of the church singing. So maybe, maybe I could do this too. Maybe I could talk about God. So I went home and I got my grandmother's legal, yellow legal pad and my teenage study Bible. And my favorite verse of the time was Proverbs seventeen twenty two: a cheerful heart is good medicine. And it was very exegetically weak. But what I wrote about, what I spoke about was how when we choose to notice our blessings, we realize how blessed we really are. And I ended the sermon 
<laughs> because this is what people do. Not at all. No, not really. But I ended the sermon by singing a song by Bing Crosby and White Christmas, the one when I'm worried and I can't sleep, I count my blessings. And so it was, <laughs> it was, was so ridiculous. But from um, that was when I was 13. And um, I was then surrounded by mentors and opportunities that were just polishing and supporting the, those gifts in me. So when you look back on the faith of those early years, and especially the the time of serving in the local church, did you see, was what you experienced a healthy version of faith, or did you experience other aspects of faith as well? I would like to believe at times it was a healthy faith, mo- most of the time. However, <laughs> I think there were times, and I, I think I realized this when I started seminary, by um, from 16 to 24, I was on the ordination path and was heading down the path to become a senior pastor. And then I realized when I was in seminary that, and this word has many definitions, so I, I hope I don't offend anyone by using it in this context, but I, I realized when I was in seminary that it was really my ego that was wanting me to be a senior pastor. Then, and what I mean by that is I found it so sexy that 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 power <laughs> and that that's what it was and it wasn't really the work and i i remember and i talk about this some at the end of the book about in in the tips for vocational discernment discovering what what is it that god wants you what did god wire you to do i realized as i was speaking and hanging out with other people that were really called to be senior pastors that they at least in my denomination they had a heart for the sacraments and the bure- honoring and nurturing the, the bureaucratic machine of the church with keeping order in the church and i did not have a heart for those things my heart was really geared toward encouraging others to reach their full potential in god through words and helping people honor their gifts. It, I have a, I had and still have a heart for learning about the brain and how neuroscience and spirituality go hand in hand and how they affect each other and whatnot. And so at 24, I had to, I remember I wrote a, I wrote two eight page letters to my mom and dad, and then to my grandparents that I was going to pull out of the ordination track. And I, I feel like I broke their hearts a little bit and I, I broke a lot of mentors' hearts <laughs> because I, I, I realized that this is this is not what I'm made to do. This is I just want to do it because it looks impressive. And then I started realizing, oh my gosh, so as the book hilariously and vulnerably shares, I was living my life merely to impress parishioners and mentors of the faith. And while that looks good from the outside, I wasn't honoring what brought me joy. I wasn't honoring the work that I felt to divide. I wasn't honoring the way that God was calling me to serve. So what what changes took place as a result of that realization? It's such a blessing at a young age to have that kind of clarity of, you know what, maybe this isn't what I need to be doing. So what changed at that point? How, how did your focus shift? I know you said that you kind of broke some hearts of, of mentors who saw potential within you. How did you navigate that, their expectations? Oh, very uncomfortably. <laughs> no, just kidding. But that, that's, that's, actually, that's actually true. It was, very, it was very uncomfortable, but at the same time, it was extremely rewarding. And I'm so thankful that at Bethel Seminary, one of my good friends was on staff there, Kristen Anderson, and she's now a life coach, 
Kristen Anderson Wolf. And at that time she worked at the seminary and she gave me Parker Palmer's book, Let Your Life Speak. And she, she advised me to just start. She gave me three, three, three helpful tips to read Parker Palmer's book and then not to should on myself (laughs) when I feel something. And and I know as we'll talk about later, Christians struggle to feel authentic feelings. And so she encouraged me whenever I felt something or was triggered by something, which this wasn't that big of a word back then, <laughs> but just to take notice and, and instead of saying, oh, I shouldn't feel that, just to say, I feel this and sit with that feeling and just kind of ask, why do I feel this? And so she really encouraged me to start getting in touch with, with my feelings. And I started at that point, as I, as I, as I share in the book, when I knew the senior pastor route wasn't for me, but that I still wanted to serve people in a realm theology and spirituality. And I, I loved the, as I said before, I love studying the brain and learning styles. And I loved helping people with their gifts and honoring their talents at the church I served at. I loved working in children and family ministry because I was able to work with all ages and help people honor their gifts and help build a strong team. And I, I had a heart for I, and I, I still do. I had a huge heart for kids of troubled homes because I I believe that that's one of the greatest benefits that the, the local church in a community can be is that that supplemental family that shows kids of um, hurting homes. It shows them a God who heals. And so I, I believe that and still do. And so that that carried me through those years at, at the church. And even though I had pulled out of the not the campaign, but not the race. I pulled out of the ordination process. I was still drawn to ways of teaching and ways of speaking. And so I, while I worked in the church, I also helped pay, pay for seminary by working for Weight Watchers, which is where I would speak and teach every week. And so, and then I worked for a, a civic leadership group where we taught about leading in small towns and what that looks like. And th- that was me teaching to a large group once a week. And so it was so funny that I, and so that's, I started just to be open to my call using the same gifts I'd always had, but not being ordained and not being a senior pastor and being okay with that. Now, most of what we do here on the Messy Spirituality Podcast is hear a lot of deconstruction, reconstruction type stories. Now, most of my guests have had some sort of toxic faith that they were raised with, that they had to reject and then embrace uh, a, a new and healthier faith. Yours really sounds like it was pretty healthy from the beginning. Has it always been that way? And in what ways have has your faith changed over time? Yeah, I, I hit the jackpot with my my grandparents. They are United Methodist missionaries. <laughs> and so they had me reading Richard Rohr when I was in high school. <laughs> and Oh my goodness, what a gift that is. Right? Wow. Exactly, exactly. And so they were they were blessings to me and they after I first preached, they would take me to conferences and retreats and I would sing and I would preach and there was some unhealth there because I I wasn't a normal teenager with lots of <laughs> like I should have just been hanging out with friends. But instead, every weekend, I was like, let's go preach. Let's go sing. <laughs> and so they they expanded my heart and my mind to faithful mentors and a God that was bigger than our, our little church could at the time display to me. I, I would say, as I share in the book, I think there were some parts, some of the, the youth group-like activities that I took part in 
in, in, in young adult ministries that I took part in in college. I think there there was some some wounds caused by the purity culture movement, and I, I talk a little bit about that in the book. But no, overall, I um I don't have much to deconstruct from my my issue. The past thirty three years of life has been my grandparents say this, and and they have they've given me books that say this, and I believe that. But these other mentors in my life are teaching me differently. Who should I? And so I think when I was when I made that decision at 24 to break hearts and say, I love you mentors. I love you grandparents, but I don't want to be a senior pastor, but I do still want to serve with the same gifts. That, that moment really helped me to start checking in with myself whenever I made a decision or decided to explore a, a doctrinal belief, really checking in with myself and saying, do I believe this? Cause this is impressive to believe it. Or do I believe this because I feel the Holy spirit wants me to believe this and hold, hold this truth. And so, yeah, not, not much to deconstruct from it all. I, I think it's just me being brave enough to state what I believe. And that definitely happened in, in this book <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. You dedicate that new book to those grandparents that you just mentioned, who you say that they taught you to recognize the holy within. Again, that is such a gift. How specifically, I know you mentioned the Richard Rohr books and taking you to conferences. How did they specifically teach you to recognize the holy within yourself? They taught me at a very young age, probably 12, they taught me the, the spiritual practice of, of Lectia Divina, and this divine reading of scripture, where it's it's not just reading the Bible, as Keith Child says, not reading the Bible from a place of a flat Bible perspective, not like it's a neatly tied book of rules, but reading it as a, a living, inspirational book of of a people's evolving consciousness of God and how there is this meta narrative of God wanting to reconcile all of creation back to Him, and letting. And knowing that when we go to holy texts, that God is alive and speaking through that. So they taught me spiritual disciplines in early middle school of solitude, meditation, Lectia Divina. They they took me on mission trips and I was able to be with people that were suffering and able to see how God was already at work there and also how God wanted to use me and how God had been using my very talented grandparents because my grandfather, he's like a Popeye mixed with Tommy Lee Jones. The dude's in his late 70s and is still ripped. I don't know how he does it. <laughs> but he's a master, master contractor, master plumber, master electrician. And so they go to Mexico and Alaska and they build orphanages and hospitals. And so I had so I had some wounds from my childhood. And I talk about some of that in the book and the journey of forgiving my parents and my uh, allowing my parents to be on their own journey. And so when I went on my first mission trip, I, I had these wounds and in middle school and I was becoming aware of how God wanted to heal those broken parts of my story. And at the same time, I was going on these mission trips where I was helping, helping others to, if they hadn't already met the God that heals, I, I was, I was seeing firsthand that my grandparents' missionary work was introducing them to this God that heals. It was very powerful and enlightening and they taught me how to recognize the holy within through those ways. The title of your book is just a really bold statement of faith. I am my own sanctuary. What does that phrase mean to you? Yes, 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 it is a bold statement. <laughs> yeah, I first saw that statement in Latin and I don't I don't speak Latin. I wish I did, but I don't. And I I saw it in the Latin about 7 or 8 years ago and it said, and I hope I don't butcher this, but it was ego sanctuario mio. 
And when I saw that statement, it became my life mantra so quickly because it was the advice that I needed and it was the identity that I wanted to live into. And so what that meant for me was that I did not need to try to get permission or to impress or to appease anyone. And that, and I know not everyone needs that advice. I needed that advice (laughs) when I saw that statement that because the divine dwells within me, I have this eternal arsenal of grit and grace that, that is within. And so regardless of the outside chaos of poor choices or fickled feelings, and of course, this comes from a place of at times feeling just charred to the bit from working on a church staff, just burned to the, you know, totally charred, eaten alive, gnashing of teeth, all the things. And so I had, it helped me visualizing that I was my own sanctuary. It helped me to realize that despite the out, outward chaos and inwardly, I could be at peace and the reactions of others did not have to derail my emotional health for the day. And that, as you know, that's the idea of in psychology, this idea of being differentiated, that we, you can be, unaf- your mood can be unaffected by the, the hurtful words, the poor choices of others that you want to balance autonomy and togetherness. And so often in the church world, so often we holy rollers forget that. And I see so many pastors and ministerial leaders that struggle with being a differentiated person and they, they're eaten alive and it leads to total burnout. And so that, that grabbed my attention about that statement was that because of the divine within, I had this eternal arsenal of grit and grace and I didn't need anyone's approval or I did not have to work so hard to impress or appease anyone. And then the, the second part of that is that I believe that some Christians struggle to love and own their ambition. They Some think that it's godly to cloak their gifts and shrink back, as Marianne Williams says, and they think that confidence is not a godly trait. And so I wanted to I wanted to bark back at that. I wanted to clap back at that in this book and talk about how since the divine dwells within us, that God desires for us to be a co-creator with God and to steward ideas to life with high standards that we can be spiritually attuned go-getters that are confident and love our ambition. And so that's what the, this book explores is when you own it, when you own that you you are enough as you are, that the divine dwells within you, that God God loves your ambition. God wants you to be confident in the gifts God's given you, that you can, through this book, explore the different parts of your sanctuary. And so we, we explore the, the mind and emotions and spirit, soul, all these different parts of, of your sanctuary. So that's that's that. So as you're writing the book, are you writing to a specific person that you have in mind? Who is your audience that you wrote the book for? And what do you hope that they get out of it? So when I wrote the book, I had a a branding coach at the time and a business coach. And she challenged me to get as detailed as possible with who I was writing this book for. And so I did. And that's where the term spiritually attuned go-getter came from was when I was exploring who my target market for this book was. And so a spiritually attuned go-getter is, will love this book. So will recovering holy rollers. And what I mean by spiritually attuned go-getter is that that is someone who is obviously spiritually aware and wants to be as spiritually healthy as possible. And at the same time, he or she totally owns 
their power that God has given them and their talents. And they believe that God wants them to be a co-creator with God. And they love chasing goals and crushing goals. And so, and sometimes those things don't go hand in hand in Christianity. You're considered egotistical and whatnot. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, definitely written for those spiritually attuned go-getters. And I hate putting an age on things, but because age is a matter of mind, I, I wholeheartedly believe that it's just a number and it's definitely a matter of mind. But I would, from my experience, my test readers were in their late twenties to early forties. And so some of the references, because it's written like the comedian, Seth Meyers and the sister Joan, the nun, sister Joan Chittister had a book baby together. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's, it's meant to be witty and vulnerable. And there's, there's moments of cathartic cuss words in there. And there's lots of, there's references to things like South Park and How I Met Your Mother. And so I think some of the, I I don't want to say that people in their 60s will not enjoy it because I have people on my, I'm so thankful for the people on my endorsement team that are in their, have someone that's in their 80s on my endorsement team. And I know she's going to love it because, but just because she loves me, not because. And so what I hope readers get from this book is a chance to laugh while reflecting over questions of self-worth and faith practical tips to get rid of limiting beliefs around ambition and goals, helpful tips to discern their vocational calling, a strategy to build boundaries with those toxic personalities in your life and ideas for self-care that honor the mind, body, spirit, and soul connection. And yes, I did read that from the book's website. (laughs) Very good. It's good to have those things at the ready. All right. So in your book, you have a chapter about the Ned Flanders syndrome. What is it and how does it affect us? Yes. Yeah. So I diagnosed myself with Ned Flanders syndrome probably when I was in an, an undergrad student. And that is, some of you might have never heard of the show, The Simpsons, which has been on, I feel like, for almost 30 years. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. One of the longest running series in the history now on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> That's so funny. It's on Disney+. Plus. That's yeah, crazy. Is. Yeah. So in, in that show, there is Homer, the Simpson, Homer and Marge have a neighbor that is this extreme holy roller named Ned Flanders. And he is afraid of feeling any feeling, any emotion that is not positive. And so he has a breakdown in one of the episodes. I don't know which season, but he does when he just explodes. And so because he has not allowed himself to, to feel all the other, the feelings that we, we have that God has given us to feel and that we can trust as, um, as direction in our life. So that's, that's the Ned Flanders syndrome, this fear of feeling anything but happy because it might make us look like a weak or bad Christian. So you said that you found yourself in that character. How did that manifest in your life personally? I really struggled to have healthy friendships because I felt that I, I could not be vulnerable or real. And I often made my own preferences in life invisible because I, I thought that disagreeing would be, would make me a weak Christian. And it prevented a lots, it prevented lots of healing from taking place because in order to heal from the wound, we first have to feel sadness for the wound and feel hurt and feel anger. And because I wasn't allowing myself to feel those things in many situations, I think it, it was a roadblock to lots of my own healing that, that God wanted to do in me. Yeah, I think that's one of the greatest gifts of your book. And there are several for the reader, but you seem to be reminding us over and over again that permission has been granted to feel, to take agency, that we are empowered, that, as you like to say, the grace and the grit 
for every moment is already there and that we are able to um, be who we are, who we were created to be. And, and that is such a liberating thought for somebody who's who's never had it before. Somebody who's stuck in that Ned Flanders syndrome of not giving themselves permission to feel things. We're, we're told that it's sinful or fleshly to to have some of the feelings that we have. I mean, even even the way that you dropped out of the senior pastor track, that ordination path, uh, I think is just hugely aware for a young person to say, you know what, maybe I'm in this for the wrong reasons. I don't. I don't think most of us have that kind of self awareness, but your book definitely encourages that it, that it is there, maybe beneath the surface, but it is there, and it's such a gift. I'm grateful for your book. Hey, towards the end of your book, Meg, you offer five tips to help readers like me find our vocational calling. I know that's something that a lot of us struggle with. Uh, could we talk about those tips for a few minutes? Would that be okay? Definitely. Okay. The first one in the book is don't confuse compliments with calling. Now, I've seen some of this in your own personal story. People were complimenting you when you would share, when you would teach. And and I think there was an assumption that you were going to be a senior pastor because you had the gifts. Talk to us about that first tip. Yeah, it's probably or it could be more tempting to other personality types like my own than it is to others. And I also think if a person in their younger years did not feel loved or accepted just as they were at home. If there was a performance-based love in their childhood, that any outside place that is giving love and affirmation to that, that, that kid or that teenager, that kid's not going to want to lose that, that that kid's me, (laughs) obviously. And so I think at first, and God used that for good. And I, I I wouldn't change a thing and no regrets at all. But I think, yeah, at first I was hungry for, um, so hungry for compliments and affirmation that I, I confused that for, this must be my calling. Since everyone tells me I'm great at this, they must be the voice of God in my life. And, and there's, there is a place in vocational discernment to listen to others that that you trust and respect, and what what are they saying about the fruit that your your ministry is bearing? And obviously, that has a role to play, but it can't. It has to line up with, as the other tips share, with with joy. And so, and I in in the in that section of the book, I do quote Parker Palmer's awesome moment in his book, "Let Your Life Speak." When he talks about, he, he's a Quaker and they have this tradition. It's not called accountability groups. It's not called meetings, friends. I don't know what it's called, but he had this accountability group per se. And he called them all together for some, for some questions. And he was about to make a big decision. He was asked to be the president of this university. And reading this changed my life when I was 24. And so all of his accountability friends, accountability partners asked him, when you think about doing the work of a university president, what is it about that work that brings you the most joy? And without missing a beat, Parker Palmer said, seeing my picture on the front page of the paper with the title president of the university, that was all he could think of <laughs> that would bring him joy. And so in that moment, he realized it wasn't the work that, that it was bringing, would bring him joy. That wasn't his calling. That wasn't the work he was wired to do, that it really was just the compliments that he loved. So he didn't he didn't accept the job. And so that's what that part is about. Not confusing compliments with your calling. That's awesome. Tip number two, seek your time warp. Yeah. So this one is fascinating. And I, I always talk way too much. And so I, I apologize for that. But yeah, so many people have experienced this, but in the, and experienced that 
when they're doing a task, when they're creating some type of work, that time flies by and you've only been working for, you've been working for five hours and it feels like 30 minutes. And so in this part of the book, I unpack neurologically what's going on and that as thinking Christians, we can trust that because it's something amazing that's happening in our brain. And so seeking your time warp is a, is number two, being aware of that and also being super impressed, super impressed with how God made our brains. Number three, observe your effortless grit. What does that mean? Yeah. So I share a, an amazingly true story about the phenomenal comedian Mindy Kaling here in that part of the book. And notice that how a moment where she was in line with her vocational calling when she when she naturally performed at a higher quality and was sustained through even the hardest of days in that work. And so notice, take, I won't give it away. It's a beautiful story about her and her mom and the launch of her show, The Mindy Project. But being aware in your life of where do you and not not from a place of being egotistical, but from a place of just taking note, I seem to have much more grit in this area than others. And I love it. There's there's this combination of joy and grit and others will notice. I don't know how others might say things. I don't know how you how you do it. Like this is this is, looks like such hard work. And then in your mind, you're thinking, but I love it. So even the hard work is fun. And so th- those moments of um, noticing your effortless grit. Tip number four, see your present steps by surrendering to your future vision. Talk to us about that. Yeah, yeah. So I believe that sometimes in our lives, the Holy Spirit might provide us a vision that depicts our life in the future. And of course, other people, depending where they are on the theological spectrum, they might have different labels for this. (laughs) They might say things like, manifesting a future or whatnot. But uh, for the word, for the sake of the book, that I believe that the Holy Spirit gives us visions of our future. And this might be a dream of an ideal workspace or the end goal, but then no other steps to get there. And so I think the first step is to surrender, surrender toward that vision that the Holy Spirit has placed on your heart. Even if you're told things like the insurance plan will suck in that line of work or that job doesn't exist yet, or, (laughs) you know, you've heard all of them. Um, But I think surrendering fully and trusting into that vision in order to see the steps to actualize it. And so I give some examples of, um, of what that might look like taking these little steps to get toward that, that big vision. And um, yeah, I, I I won't give it all away, but yeah, that, that one. (laughs) That's right. They have to read the book to get the specifics. They have to to read the book. (laughs) Tip number five, the final tip, one calling different gigs. What do you mean by that? Yeah. And I have heard other, lots of other people say this, and I think it, I don't, it probably didn't become famous with Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life, but I think that exploded this concept. And then my campus minister taught it to us as undergrad students. And that is this idea that your life could have this overarching life mission statement, if you will. And then under that umbrella of that mission statement, you have different positions, different titles. But as you look back, you see, oh, I was using very similar gifts in all of those settings. And so being being okay with that. And um, I once, one of my dear friends, this is a great example. I think her, she would, oh, she would own this too, that her life calling is, is to have difficult conversations with ease. And the title she's held is that she she was at an airport. She was the person that people would talk to when the, air, the airline lost their luggage. Then she worked at um, our 
she worked at our preschool for part time at the church I used to serve at, and she was in charge of tracking down payments from parents that were late on payments. And then she's a um, at the same time as that she was also a mortician, where she in a part time funeral director, where she would work with help help families write their eulogies and comfort them during the funeral and um, get the parents, get the family's preferences on preparing the body for burial. And so it was obvious that, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense that that is, that was her overarching life mission statement, that she is gifted in being, carrying out difficult conversations from a, with ease and has the right words, has the right body language, naturally does it so well, has no fear. And so I think it's, especially for, especially for younger people finishing high school or finishing college or whatever is after them for them after high school in that period of life, when they're, th- when they're overwhelmed, like, Oh gosh, I could do this. I could do this. Just this idea of you, most people, especially, especially millennials and Gen Z <laughs> kids are going to have different titles. And I read a study once that said, millennials will most likely have 14 different job titles in their life. And that wasn't the case for Xers and boomers and especially not builders. And so owning it, that God has this, that you can have this life mission statement, this overarching way that you serve in your life, different titles, very similar gifts and own that rocket, live into it. Meg, I'm so grateful for your time today. Thanks for sharing with us. I'm really grateful for your book. It's just a beautiful book. Thank you for sharing that with us as well. Would you close us out today by reading a passage of your book? Yes, I'd be happy to. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to read a part in the book that is in the Grace for My Body chapter. And the subtitle is A Temple Tuned In. And this part of the book is called Happy Meal. Hearing an opinion that differed than the churches continued to catch me off guard as I matured into my 20s. During some of my summers as an undergrad student, I served as a chaplain at a sailing camp in Long Island. My boss and friend Greg encouraged me to explore seminaries nearby, so we ventured over to Union. I had romanticized this visit so much in my mind because such theological greats like Bonhoeffer and Niebuhr had served there. My heart leapt for joy as we walked down the lovely gray stone walls. The energy in the space was electric until we opened the door to the admissions counselor's office. The guy's nook was an utter disaster with spray with stray paper and fast food bags all over the place. He was a substantial man with his feet propped up on the desk and his stained shirt partially untucked like a Texas high school football coach. Bonhoeffer would be appalled, sir. Tuck your shirt in, sit up straight, and for God's sake, throw your McDonald's bag away. It turned out he not only looked like a Texas football coach, but he also addressed me like a player, which made this exchange quite comical. We explored some of their master's programs, and as the conversation moved toward housing options, he said something most unexpected. Yeah, 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 you can live with, sleep with whomever you like. We know we all have different views here at Union, and we encourage diversity. Come again? I thought, am I in the right place? Did you just encourage promiscuity? Are you implying that I should not take the sacredness of my body and what I do with it seriously? Did you not notice this giant cross purity ring on my hand, sir? Insert pageant style wave of the ring. Also, how can <laughs> <laughs> also how can that stain be from barbecue sauce? It's 10 in the morning. Have you not changed your shirt since yesterday? On the drive home to Camp Quinnipet, I thought of how while I did not appreciate the fear-based teachings of my childhood on sex, I most surely did not appreciate the lackadaisical, happy meal-smelling tales of promiscuity from that guy either. 
So what was the happy medium? Could I learn to love my body and my libido? What even is a libido? Is it even real? If a libido increases in the woods and no one is around to hear it, does God care? Could I live from a healthy view of myself and my sexuality that would not allow the pendulum to swing too far in either direction? If so, what would that look like? I would grapple with these questions for eons, and the memories of the Bronco, the bleach, and the barbecue stain would pop up while I was on a second date with a stripper years later, and he said to me in his muscular glory, so a minister, huh? I gotta ask you one question that I've never understood about you. What's the deal with Christians and sex? Why do you hate it so much? Well, you extremely hot man, let me tell you. End scene. (laughs) Wow, that's a great plug for the book. Friends, the book is I Am My Own Sanctuary, How a Recovering Holy Roller Found Healing and Power. It's published by Choir and available today. You'll find a link to the book, to Meg's website, and podcast in the show notes. Meg, what's the best way for our listeners to engage with you? Yes, please find me at megcalvin.com. I'm on Facebook, Meg Calvin. I'm on Instagram with my legal name, Meggie underscore Lee underscore Calvin. And I would love to connect with you. And then check, check us out on our podcast, The Listening Chair, where we explore the spiritual undertones of all careers. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. It was such a gift. It was an honor for me. Thank you, Jason. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.